The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is the historian Anna Kay, whose new book, The Restless Republic, Britain Without a Crown, covers, well, that brief period when Britain was without a crown, the interregnum. Anna, welcome. What attracted you to this funny little blip in our history? (laughs) Well, I mean, the answer is partly in your question, because somehow the fact that we had a revolution and we were a republic for more than a decade, has sort of become a funny little blip in our history. And it struck me, I suppose, as somebody... I mean, I've worked on this century quite a lot as a historian, but I'd never worked on that part of it. And it just felt to me like it was something we've kind of forgotten about. And although, of course, constitutionally it was a failure, as self-evidently, by the fact we still have a monarchy today, it was just an extraordinary thing to happen. And I was really kind of I really wanted to to learn myself more about what it was like to live through that and I suppose it was prompted a bit when we were you know when Brexit and everything was happening and you know constitutional or you know big shifts political shifts were afoot uh, in our world and I was just thinking that feels like quite a big deal but it must have been nothing to what it was like to stand in Whitehall in 1649 and watch Charles I be executed and then the, the office of king be abolished and all the other things that came next. So I guess I just wanted to really get 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 under the skin of what that what it was like to be alive at that time. Now there is that sense in the early section of your book. I mean, I don't know. It, it sort of almost makes me think of that Withnail and I scene where you know we've had we've had a revolution by mistake. I mean, they never <laughs> they never actually meant to kill the king to start with, did they? Well. Some people, you know, I think probably always had that in their sights. But yeah, you're right, which is to say it wasn't a kind of, it wasn't a popular revolution in the sense that if you'd had a kind of, if you'd had a a plebiscite on shall we execute Charles I, I mean, I don't think there's any question that uh, the vote would have been against it. And even if you'd had a proper vote in the House of Commons, it would have been against it. It was only, you know, the trial of Charles I only happened because the army, which is very powerful, literally stood on the steps of the House of Commons and turned away half the members, uh, the ones who they thought weren't going to, you know, weren't going to vote for it. So it wasn't quite by mistake, because I think that was all very deliberate, but it was certainly affected by military coup, unquestionably. So the fact that it lasted as long as it did is all the more surprising in a way, given that it wasn't something that, you know, was kind of the will of the people, however much they build it like that, which they did. A sort of pivotal figure in this who is quite forgotten, at least to ignoramuses like me, is John Bradshaw. Yes. Who, you know, present, t- tell me about him, because he's the sort of person, he's your way into the story, isn't he? Yeah, so John Bradshaw is a name that nobody knows, unless you're a real 17th century buff. But he was the man who presided over the trial of Charles I. He was, a, he was a lawyer, he was a judge. And then he went on, having done that, to be made president of the Council of State, which was kind of the, you know, the closest thing there was to the person in charge for the first three or four years of the Republic. And I was just 
because I, for me, right, thinking about history, I find it much easier to kind of get my head around it if I think about it through the lens of what people experienced, because otherwise it can become a great sort of mass of acts of parliament and sort of, you know, rather kind of sort of heavy going administrative stuff. I thought, so let's take a figure like John Bradshaw. So how did he come to be sitting in that chair trying Charles I? And if sometimes these people who were the the kind of at the forefront of the, the revolution, the kind of people who would who would be that who were the kind of big roundheads if you like can seem a bit sort of joyless and bleak and cardboard cut out then you just have to step back and think but these were people too you know the, the, he was a, a human being and so what 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 took him there so I so I followed the story of John Bradshaw who's been very little written about actually interestingly in, and, and to try piece together why he might have felt so strongly that everything was a disaster to the extent that you had to take this kind of massive seismic action of executing the king and abolishing monarchy and so I sort of traced his story back and and it turned out that he had been mayor of the town of Congleton in in Cheshire during the early 1640s when there was a terrible terrible bout of plague it lasted two years he was in charge of the town it it stopped economic life completely in a way that's quite familiar to us now people died in their you know hundreds he was overseeing all the plague measures all of which failed you know, they were burying bodies hand over fist. And he was obviously really, you know, as you would be, really affected by that. And that was the point at which he abandons being a lawyer in Cheshire and comes to London and takes a role in politics. So I was trying to build up a picture in his case of how it would be that you could really feel that something really radical had to happen. Because, of course, for people at that time, and John Bradshaw is a case in point, Things didn't happen by chance. You know, if plague came, it wasn't because of, you know, your, you know, you didn't have a kind of understanding of, you know, the transmission of pandemics. You thought that it was God saying, this is my punishment on you, the people of England, for having really, really screwed up. And then, so anyway, so, so he's an interesting character because, you know, he actually, he was, you know, he was, he, he was kind of very fair-minded. He presided over the trial of Charles I with great dignity, actually. You know, he, he wasn't sort of heckling and lobbing things at the king in the way that some of the soldiers were doing. And after it happened, he was utterly committed to trying to make a success of the Republic. He turned up for every single meeting of the Council of State, which Oliver Cromwell would never do later when he became sort of key figure. And, you know, he sort of died in its cause in the end. So... So, I mean, he's one instance, one could look at others, but and you could have taken a different group of people. But I think as soon as you start doing that, you start, instead of thinking, well, who were the goodies and who were the baddies and who was right and who was wrong, start saying the sort of much the less least interesting question, actually. The much more interesting question, question is, how did it come to pass that at that time this astonishing thing was brought into being, this republic? And what, what, you know, what was it that, pe- that drove people to do something so dramatic? And you you mentioned this this idea that you know nothing happens by accident. There's some religious convictions of the time, and I mean, how how central were they to the overthrow of the monarchy and what what was to follow? Oh, just so central. I mean, you you kind of basically cannot overstate it. I mean, the the you know the the revolution that we had in England and which Scotland and Ireland in different ways were also participants was first and foremost about religion. It's different in that respect from the American Revolution or the French Revolution. And you have to get your, you really get your head into that to make sense of it. Because if you, if you, if you, if you're applying to it, a kind of, you know, more conventional, like it's a social revolution, it's about the, you know, the dispossessed poor, you, you, you're getting off on completely the wrong foot in understanding what the 17th century revolution was about. 
I mean, there were, I'm not saying there weren't other factors, but overwhelmingly, the thing which was driving people on all fronts and the, the thing that held together, if you like, the kind of parliamentarian cause during civil war and the, the, the Republicans after was a kind of real sense that there needed to be radical religious reform, that the, Ref, the, you know, the Reformation essentially of a century before had kind of lost its way and we'd become kind of Catholic and we were displeasing God, we'd, we'd sort of strayed from the path and that this had to be about writing it. And then that's another reason why I think you need to kind of, well, I tried to write the book in a way which doesn't treat that as a big sort of rather kind of hefty sort of theological issue, but tries to just say, well, what does that mean for individual people? So as, as I was describing, for John Bradshaw, it means his failure to prevent the people of his town from dying from plague, I would, I argue, made him feel that this big hand of God, like, you know, a Monty Python sketch, was pointing at him saying, you, you have failed. You have failed to do what I require of you in the voice of God, which is to go and sort this country out. And the king is busy, you know, um, introducing all sorts of things into church worship and, you know, making everyone bow at the altar and wear special sort of, as it were, Catholic vestments and so on. And this is the work of the Antichrist. We've got to, you know, we've got to see it off. So... So it's a, it's a, it, it is a different world, but when you, get your, when you get your kind of eye in with it, and I do think that when you get to know some individuals who are you know, swimming in those waters, you, you do quite quickly, then it all begins to make much more sense and why things happen that, you know, why, for example, they thought it was all right. The um, army thought it was all right to sort of chase out all the MPs of the House of Commons in order to leave only those that would vote with them, because although the language you might be using is this is the will of the people what you really mean is this is the will of god and these people are right and those people are wrong so there's you know there are better sorts of people on whose side god is and 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 the crucial thing was that winning wars was a way that god showed you that he thought you were doing the right thing so if you won the civil war then ergo you were right so you know we've got to stick with this guys and god's given us victory and we will be failing in our in the sort of trust and approval he's expressed of us if we don't see it through and and dispense with Charles I altogether. Is there also a sense in which it feels to me at various points in this this book, like the, the leaders of originally the revolution and later the sort of people who are running parliament, you, they're often sort of out riding a tiger and that they're outstripped by the army sort of is more radical than they are. And that there's a, there's a thing where, where actually quite often they're pushing further. You know, the, these ideas of, for instance you know, extending suffrage in a really big way or, you know, a, a sort of really radical Puritanism. They're not always on board with that, the leaders, are they? I mean, there's the, the sort of Cromwell and, and Fairfax, you know, who notably wasn't really on board with the regicide, you know. No, that's absolutely right. And, you know, because because it isn't, you know, it wasn't, it's fundamentally, it wasn't like a social revolution. So if someone like Oliver Cromwell, Thomas Fairfax, you know, the heads of the army, Cromwell number two, Fairfax was number one in the army during the Civil War. You know, they're, they're not pushing for allowing poor people to vote. You know, that's a horrible thought. God knows what might happen then, you know. So, the, <laughs> whereas there are those, it, it, particularly, you know, there's a group called the Levellers who are very forthright about, about being much more ambitious about kind of social enfranchisement and so on. And, uh, you know, Oliver Cromwell and, and really most of the leaders of the parliamentarian cause are, they're gentry. They're not sort of like dispossessed revolutionaries from working their way from the sort of bottom of the heap to change the world. You know, these people, you know, Oliver Cromwell's grew up in gentry family. His, his uncle 
entertained James I at his house about 20 times. You know, that's the great balancing act, really, I suppose, of the whole period. Politically, when you're looking at the sort of high politics of it, is that, is that the, the, the army was fired up by talk of freedom and a new way of doing things and so on. And the rank and file of the army are, on the whole, more kind of middling sort of people. But the, those in charge certainly don't want with very few exceptions, don't want to kind of rock the boat too much because they're, they're landowners themselves. And that wasn't what they were there for. You know, that wasn't the reason they had turned up. They turned up to try and affect a kind of, largely to try and affect a kind of religious reformation and to um, have a more even or a different balance of power between the king and parliament. But that wasn't about, that wasn't about the poor. No, I mean, one of the sort of lovely and strange side anecdotes in the in the book is that while all this high political turmoil is going on, they're really quite alarmed about, you know, a group of sort of gentle people planting parsnips near Guildford. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So this is this group called the Diggers, who you know much mythologised by Billy Bragg and others in sort of popular song and stuff. And they, yeah, there's a chap called Gerald Winstanley, who's an amazing guy, who's a, who was a clothier, whose business collapsed during the Civil War, as lots of people's did, because, you know, war interrupts trade, and who has a kind of nervous breakdown and, and, and relocates to, to, to leafy Surrey, where <clears throat> when there's lots of talk, as there is around the time of the execution of Charles I, about, you know, the restoring of freedom and those sort of high words about what was happening. And he thinks, oh, he has a sort of vision, he has a kind of epiphany, sort of sees a, work, sees a future, brought, brought in a vision, not brought in kind of by kind of, you know, a work of sort of social political science that we can all, there'll be enough for everybody, we can share everything if we just, if, 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 prop, if sort of ownership and title of land is just, you know, set aside and we, and we till the common land, then there'll be enough for everyone to eat. And he <clears throat> recruits some, some people from Cobham, which is where he lives in Surrey, and they go up onto St George's Hill, which ironically is now a massive gated community in Weybridge where you can buy a house for sort of 50 million quid but at the time was just you know Heathland and they start planting carrots and things and it's 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 all rather charming and Thomas Fairfax himself head of the army goes to have a look because there were reports of some sort of odd goings on and he's he's not really bothered by it at all he thinks it's all as I say rather kind of you know touching that there they are trying desperately to plant beans in very unpromising soil. But there are two interesting things about it. One is that because during the war and the beginning of the the Republican period, all the normal kind of arrangements of censorship and so on fail. So it's possible to publish things which before the kind of strong arm of state control very much kept on top of. And so there's a great welter of publishing of books on all sorts of wonderful, crazy ideas about how you might organise the world and organise religion. And, and, and someone like Wynne Stanley is very kind of excited by this. And then you add into the mix the fact that newspapers have suddenly become a thing. I mean, a generation before, no one had heard of a newspaper and not, no such thing existed. By the time you get to the early 1650s, there are scores of them and people all over the country are reading newspapers every day about what's happening in England, about what's happening all over the world. And so this little group of idealistic sort of, you know, proto-communists on St George's Hill even though there are never any more than 50 of them, it's tiny, that what they're doing are reported all over the country and everyone is reading about, you know, what's going on. But in the end... Viral news. Yeah, you know, it is. And that's, again, that was the thing that I thought was interesting. You know, not that I, the book labours this, but I think in reading about this period, you, you are struck by modern parallels. I mean, you know, the fact that you have a new medium 
um, in this case, um, newspaper print, that basically means that what somebody is doing in a little corner of, you know, heathery soil in Surrey is being read about in Carlisle and being read about in Cornwall. It's just completely unthinkable. And of course, it's, you know, it's a bit like you know, social media or something, which is the sudden great escalator of ideas. So anyway, poor old Wynne Stanley and his pals do their best with planting the carrots and things and are left untroubled by the central government. But of course, what happens is, which is a sort of classic timeless thing, which is it's, it's the people from the next door parish who are really cross about it because they're sort of saying, well, well, hang on a second, you know, actually St George's Hill is not in their parish, it's in our parish, you know, the real sort of get off my land moment. And they're thought to be kind of weird and sort of, it's sort of, you know, be a bit like, you know, in the 70s, the group of hippies taking up residence in a rather smart village in Surrey. You know, we don't want your sort around here. So they're hounded out, sort of disappears from view, but not without a moment where everybody's talking about what they're doing. And his, at the time, wildly way out idea that, you know, property ownership is, it might not be a given and actually we could just share stuff, is given an audience, which it never had before, to great effect long term. That point you make about the arrival of newspapers, one of the most entrancing characters you you light on is this character Marchmont Needham, who kind of is this amazing sort of if you don't don't like my principles, I have others sort of guy. Isn't he? I mean, he's a, <laughs> the original kind of hack. He's brilliant, Marchmont Needham. So he's the kind of he's the first proper big newspaper editor. I'm sure you know your colleagues at the Spectator will recognise characteristics, timeless characteristics. He's he's a great boozer, he's a great raconteur, he's a ducker and a diver. And he, like lots of people at the time, didn't really have a particularly strong political view about, you know, whether you're on this side or that side. He was interested in how am I going to, you know, how am I going to, you know, profit out of what's going on? Because, of course, actually, during the course of the Civil War, the vast majority of people never take a side. You know, that's, they're just, you know, they just want to get on with their lives. You know, this is not, you know, I'm not that bothered. One of the Republican leaders says at the end of the 1650s, ultimately, people don't really care who's in charge as long as they can plough and go to market. You know, there's just more important things in people's minds. But Marchmont Needham, as well as sort of not particularly having a kind of ethical or, you know, philosophical set of loyalties to one side or the other, also sees that this business of, of selling newspapers and being a apologist or a kind of advocate for one view or another is, is this, this is the real scope for profit. So he switches sides, I think, three times, starts off writing for a parliamentarian newspaper, then goes over to a royalist newspaper and then is put in prison escapes from Newgate Prison, goes into hiding, sees what a mess the Republican government is making of, of kind of PR, basically, sees that it's all a disaster, that everybody's busy buying Charles I's memoirs and collecting sort of keepsakes of the martyr king. And so he writes to John Bradshaw, even though he's on the run, and says, look, I can sort this out for you. Let me, you know, let take the kind of price off my head, release me, and I will produce you a paper which will be the what he calls the stalk of the republic. It will be the kind of, it will be the the thing which brings the republic to the people as a kind of positive, exciting thing rather than something that everyone hates. And he starts writing this newspaper, and and his argument is it shouldn't just be boring, stodgy prose. I can write a kind of impish, teasing, sort of slightly scurrilous paper which people will really want to read, will make them laugh. And we'll get them, you know, on your side. And he and he goes on to do it. And the, the paper that he produces every week for the next 10 years is absolutely kind of crucial part of the sort of, you know, kind of binding people to the to the to the Republic. 
But also along the way, it's it begins the whole world of what we now know as kind of newspaper and magazine publishing. It has foreign correspondence. It has classified ads. So, you know, people start putting adverts in his paper saying, you know, they've produced a brilliant book that teaches you how to speak Latin overnight and, you know, all sorts of things. And it means that international as well as national news is suddenly on the kind of breakfast tables of innkeepers in Lancashire and, you know, ploughmen in Norfolk. So it, it it's it's really transformational for what it's like to be to be a person in Britain in in the past because you go from having a a, a frame of view which is basically what's happening around you and to and, and and maybe in you know your county town to one where you're reading about the fact that the that a, that a volcano has erupted in Sumatra and that is part of the you know what you're what you're learning about. So it's really, really a big deal, the, this business of the of the sudden arrival of newspapers. And you, you say, you know, it's going on a ploughman's table. So it really is that democratic. It goes that low, the newspaper circulation, does it? Yeah, so I mean, there's lots of really interesting work that's been done on this, but about, about levels of literacy and so on. And of course, they vary in different parts of the country and depending on people's trades and so on. But, but that's what Needham himself says of his paper, is that it is now in the hands of... And he cites a kind of range of, you know, jobs. Now, I mean, I suppose, you know, you can say, well, how many ploughmen could actually read in 1650? But but the point is, he is writing for an audience that is not just the kind of, you know, lawyers and parliamentarians. He is writing, you know, it's a, it's a tabloid. He's writing for the, a mass audience and he's doing it in a way that makes it fun, like it's not a worthy task to read the news. You want to do it. And he loves the thought and he writes, he's very self-referential in the paper. He writes about the fact that, Everyone who's anyone wants to know what's in my paper this week. You know, uh, you know, lovers want to know to be able to tell their sweethearts what's happening. So, so he's he's deliberately aiming for this much broader audience. And it's and you know, and the papers get produced on a Thursday. We know exactly how it works. They then get they're, they're sold in London by newspaper vendors who are generally women who have big baskets. They carry on their shoulders around the town and they sell the copies. But they also get put on the the various coaches that are running out to Norwich and to Nottingham and to. Uh, Bristol and so on. So by the weekend, if you're sitting at your breakfast table in Hunstanton, for example, as I, in the case of one family, we've got definite evidence they do. They've got they've got Thursday's paper and they are reading what is happening, you know, in London and in the world and on campaign and all sorts of things. So that's just so different. I mean, and that's the kind of thing that I find so interesting is that the high politics stuff is really interesting and the book covers all of that. But it's also that what this business about what it was like to be alive and you know th- therefore. Things like this business of the, the 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 rise of the newspaper just is so fundamental, and and it's one of the things about this period is that the contention of the book is that although as I say it was a constitutional failure having a republic, the stuff that happens <clears throat> in that decade remains absolutely with us and completely in a whole series of areas. You know whether it's whether it's reading newspapers or whether it's going to the opera or whether it's drinking coffee it, it these are things which absolutely begin in this decade do you have a sense of what it was like for if you like very ordinary you've said most people are not involved most people either don't take sides obviously it's disruptive and horrible when armies are sweeping through your town because they strip the thing bare like locusts but is there any sense that survives of kind of if you like the mass of people's feeling about the regicide and about the parliamentary kind of interlude i mean what do do we know what they thought or were they just like i'm here 
plowing beans, oh shit, it's the plague, oh shit, it's another army, you know, getting on with their lives? Or was there a sort of strong feeling? I mean, when, when Charles II, for instance, had his very ill-fated sally down from Scotland early on to try and try and reclaim the throne, we know that the gentry didn't rally to him for all sorts of self-interested reasons, among others. But but would ordinary people have been like, hooray, the king's coming back, stability returns? I think it was the opposite. I mean, you know, the truth, there's all sorts of sort of riders you can put. Well, we don't, you know, it's very difficult to know. Most people don't leave a written record, etc. But just to sort of get away from the kind of qualifications, I think the, 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 the basic picture is for the ordinary person who's busy working in an inn or, or being a sheep farmer or whatever they're doing, the thing that's the absolutely defining thing about the experience of the, the decade from 1649 is that it came after nearly 10 years of war. So when Charles I, uh, Charles II rather, um, you know, has his famous episode of riding into England from Scotland and, and trying to, to, to retake the throne and he ends up hiding up the oak tree, as, as, uh, as we all know. People didn't look at him saying, oh, hooray, here comes the king and the return of stability. They looked, and this is you know, in 1651, they looked and said, oh, my God, you know, we've just, this war has just come to an end. We've had last a year where we haven't been fighting and suddenly someone's trying to start it all up again. So I think it was much more about, please, no more of that. You know, we've just managed, for example, to get our shops open again and be trading again. We've just got to a position where we haven't got soldiers, you know, sleeping in our barns and eating all our seed corn. We're just at a position where our ships can sail to, you know, carry cloth to sell overseas again without being interrupted by by war. So, so I think that you just, you cannot make sense of how people felt and their sense of kind of exhaustion and please can we just have some peace without remembering what they'd all experienced and as you say I mean most you know, most people weren't fighting in the civil war most people were busy trying to get on with those things but in in in, in almost all cases to some extent that whatever that thing was would would have been affected by the civil war the, the damage on the towns of England from the civil war was massive the outskirts of all significant market towns were mostly demolished in order to allow them to put up defenses for you know to prevent to be able to fight sieges and, you know there was massive despoilation of buildings um, hundreds of thousands of people were killed or died of disease so country was exhausted by this so i think to an extent there's a kind of preparedness just to sort of suck it up when it came to the republic even though it wasn't a, a choice that people had made if it just means I can get on with my life and I can kind of, you know try and repair some of the damage and I can you know get on with my business and I think that was that was a big part of why people didn't rally to Charles II when he came in 1651 um added to the fact that he he, he rode into England with a massive army of Scots which of course completely different country, and they were very alarming sort of Highlanders, carrying in some cases sort of claymore swords and things, and everybody you know. Nobody could understand them. No one could understand anything they said, and they thought they looked very sort of barbarian and not at all like you know one of us. So that accounts for a lot of the sort of lack of a kind of immediate counter revolution, if you like. Now, I mean, one of the other things that everybody knows about the period, apart from the oak tree, is that. Cromwell and his gang went to Ireland and laid absolute waste. I mean, Marvell's poem has that, him returning and, you know, almost kind of godlike figure. It's just, why was it that this was such a priority? So what happened was that when the, in the Civil War, basically the, the, in England, 
the parliamentarians win, inverted commas, and do away with Charles I as, uh, afterwards. But of course, um, England wasn't the, the totality of Charles I's dominions because England is you know, the, where he was based, but Scotland and Ireland um, and Wales are all part of it, as well as various other smaller places overseas. So the war in England is won, but it's not won in Ireland or in Scotland. And in, in Scotland, they immediately declare Charles II king and say, you know, we thought Charles I was, you know, a bit sort of substandard as a king, but we haven't chosen to execute him and you didn't even bother to ask us. So we're not having that. So, so Charles II is declared king in Scotland and in Ireland, which of course is overwhelmingly Catholic, so not totally kind of up for a strongly Puritan um, English government, republic, are very much in sympathy and kind of, you know, poised to back Charles II. So, so there's a kind of military necessity, which is you, you, you basically, if you're, if you're um, the parliamentarian government in London, in order to secure your revolution, you've got to get control of those two parts of the sort of Stuart dominions. And so there's a kind of, uh, in 1649, Ireland has felt to be the highest priority because that's the place where the, 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 the opposition is greatest. And so Cromwell is sent to Ireland to try and wrest the island from essentially a kind of Catholic royalist confederation. So there's, so there's a practical, we just need to secure our, secure Get our territories kind of first. thing. <laughs> yeah. But then there's also, I mean, unquestionably, you know, there is there is no doubt that there was a view not just held by Puritans, but a view held by English people in the 17th century that, you know, the the Irish were sort of ungovernable lot. They were Catholics. They were sort of somewhere below us in the kind of chain of human human beings, quite a long way below us. And so it wasn't that we might be able to sort of do a deal here, which was sort of more the attitude of Scotland. It was much more they need to be suppressed. There is, you know, there is, this is sort of a huge subject, but I mean, it it was also fuelled by the fact, which comes back to the newspaper point, that um, in 1641, there'd been a Catholic uprising in Ireland. So this is before the Civil War proper had begun. And in that uprising in 1641, you know, lots of atrocities had been wreaked on Protestants by the Catholic folk who were uprising. I mean, lots happened the other way too, but the English press told amazingly um, vivid, appalling stories about, only about, the Catholic atrocities to Protestants. So Cromwell's army had ringing in their ears and actually impressed on their eyeballs because these were illustrated accounts. The tales of, you know, Catholics butchering children, roasting children in front of fires on spits, raping pregnant women, and really awful stuff. So although it was an utterly one-sided account of what had happened, and there was lots of horror which had gone the other way they believed that this was you know the 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 sort of sort of thing you were in for if you let the Irish have an inch and so they went thundering in and did you know absolutely I mean uh, um, success, successfully militarily su- sort of suppressed Ireland but wreaked you know horrible devastation along the way and there was masses of of killing of people who had not been combatants and and those who'd surrendered and, you know, all sorts of other things besides. So, yeah, it was it was horrible. Now, I mean, for anyone who's kind of got this image in their head of Cromwell's absolute ferocity in Ireland, your book paints actually a much more complex picture of him as rather a kind of sentimental man. I mean, I hadn't known, for instance, that there was more religious tolerance than at any time in England's history under Cromwell, because one thinks of him as a sort of rather stern Puritan. What was his character like? Yeah, so he's a, he's such an interesting person. My book, 
you know has a has a a, a, a chunk which focuses on him and he he was a somebody who'd had a religious conversion experience essentially he had been a, as i mentioned the son of a um, wealthy family money was sort of slightly running out and but still you know all the status and so on and then he was obviously as a young man had a come had, had periods of sort of kind of mental instability and had a sort of terrible meltdown um was tipped off in front of the council of state uh, sort of humiliated really for behavior in a town issue in huntingdon and he parted with all his land, sold all his land and moved to being a kind of tenant farmer in a little place in St. Ives. And he obviously really was on his uppers. And in his sort of darkest hour, he had a he had a religious experience. He had a sort of, he saw the light and God came to him. And, you know, he was from that moment on, having not particularly shown any sign of being a kind of a sort of any more sort of uh, a sort of passionate Puritan or sort of person of sort of religious fervour before, became seized that I, you know God has chosen me he's picked me out of the darkness and actually quite soon afterwards he inherited a lot of money so in the kind of deterministic view of the 17th century you know that was God saying yes you know I'm now on your side and do my bidding so he had a very strong sense of a of, uh, very strong sense that he had a personal relationship with God and his job on earth was to kind of you know do God's bidding but he wasn't he wasn't uh, on, on, an, on a human basis he wasn't a monstrous person at all really he was a kind husband. He had many children. He was very, very fond of them, very affectionate, not a sort of fire and brimstone kind of Puritan father. His middle daughter, who he absolutely adored, Elizabeth, who wasn't the, who, who, who herself was, you know, very interested in finding nice silk for dresses and, you know, um, um, marrying well and so on. And he, he was devoted to her. And because he had this very strong sense, he wasn't a member of any particular religious groupings. It's an interesting, interesting thing about Oliver Cromwell. He wasn't a Baptist or a fifth monarchist or a member of any of these, or a Quaker. He had a, he had a one-on-one relationship with God, and that was what drove him. And so he, he was much less sort of prescriptive about exactly what f- sort of sect or sort of creed you've signed up to, to a, for you to be able to, you know, be allowed to worship. He was much more concerned that that people should be able to have a relationship with God, which, which, which kind of God approved of, even if it didn't quite fit into one format or another. That said, it was all within the terms that he defined. So, so where, while when he was Lord Protector, the, the kind of religious formulation meant that, although there was still a Church of England, you didn't have to be a member of it, you could be you could be a Baptist or you could be a part of an, another sort of um, what we'd now call nonconformist sect or unit. But still, you couldn't, you know, being a Catholic wasn't all right. And being, a, being, a, being an old school Anglican wasn't all right. If you liked bishops, then clearly you weren't one of us. And that, you know, there were, there were prescriptions and so on against that. So, you know, he's one of these people, you take him on his own terms. And actually, he's very, he's a much more sympathetic character than you might come to, you know, this period imagining. But then you step back from it and say, well, it's all very well saying all of that. And, you know, famously, he was very interested in the question of whether whether the, the Jews might be readmitted to, to England, which is obviously very you know, uh, interesting. But at the same time, you know, for everybody who'd grown up in the Church of England with the Book of Common Prayer, with, you know, church festivals and weddings and May Day festivities and so on, all of that was done away with. And and he was totally unsympathetic to the view that, you know, hang on, this is the whole kind of pattern of people's lives. So there was kind of, there was freedom of sorts, but it was, it had pretty, pretty hard lines around it. Yeah. So I have to ask you now the very big 
sort of central question is, why didn't it work? Why did our revolution do a U-turn in a decade? I think ultimately it didn't work because it's a, it's a classic thing. It's, it's, it's one thing to say that you think that one regime or one way of doing things is, is not good. The question is, have you really figured out another way of doing it that's actually better and that's going to last? And the problem for our republic was that absolutely hadn't happened. I mean, to the extent that as Charles I's head was being held up by the executioner, they hadn't decided yet whether they were abolishing the monarchy or not. You know, so so they really there wasn't there wasn't a kind of coherent alternative constitutional settlement that 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 had enough buy in and enough stability to 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 last and ultimately it lasted you know the regime as it was lasted because it had a big army behind it and they sat around sharpening their knives and looking looking menacing and you know holding it together but it ultimately came unstuck when it became clear that no regime was going to be able to continue without the army's backing and it needed a you know it needed it needed something on a different footing to 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 hold things together and and ultimately basically they you know every they try various different forms of of republicanism and they all end in in disaster because the army and the various different parliaments can't come to an agreement and in the end there's the feeling that you know that actually going back to to the old ways is go, is going to be the only solution well okay thanks very much indeed for your time my pleasure listening to the spectators books podcast very much hope you enjoyed it and if you did please do consider rating or reviewing us on the itunes store we'd love to hear from you